How wonderful to be back. Well, I have Bob Brown. Good day. Peter Langridge and Hello. Cecilia Woodford from South Australia. Hello. And we're here to ask a bizarre question: silver linings of the clouds of climate change. Can it be serious? Before we start, I'd like to ask Bob Brown how much he misses. How much he misses the intellectual rigour, the goodwill, and the fellowship of federal parliament? Uh, I, I'm a bird out of the cage. But I spent uh, 16 years in the Senate, and Robin, and that was uh, just terrific. Great privilege. But uh, as I might be saying a little further down the line, um, we are the parliament we elect. I get a lot of people saying, oh, what about this Prime Minister or that Minister or this Government or those politicians? And my answer routinely is they reflect exactly the people who elect them. And in that, in that is a, a, a kernel of um, the new line of political thought I've come up with post-election, Robin, and that is if we don't go up the path to the schoolhouse to vote on behalf of our great-grandchildren, we've got it wrong. While ever we vote for ourselves, it's wrong. When we vote for our great-grandchildren, we'll be getting it right. So in the meantime, what is wrong with us, the electorate? Well, we voted in... Oh, no, I wasn't going to talk politics. <laughs> um, we are short-sighted. Uh, we're in the grip of a multi-trillion dollar advertising machine. Uh, it is the religion of materialism which has supplanted the great religions, most of which had at least the golden rule, do unto others as you do unto them yourself. It's now get off others whatever you can for yourself. And it's, not, it's unsustainable. It's not very sensible. It's not what's in people's hearts. And uh, we have got to, through democracy, win back the right to make sociable societies fair societies where everybody's opportunities can be met, as well as looking after the single little life-giving planet so far as we know so far, who knows what's on series, uh, that uh, there is in the universe with conscience and with the ability to change itself, and that's us. And that's our responsibility. And it isn't the politician's responsibility, and it isn't the corporate sector's responsibility. It's ours. And it depends on how we vote, how active we are, who we support, and uh, as the great US poet Drew Dellinger said, I'm awake at 3.20 in the morning because my great-grandchildren keep coming in to me in dreams. And the question is, what did you do when they stole democracy, when they warmed the planet, when they changed the climate, when they started sending species to extinction? Did you get off the footpath? That's the question. And he's got it right. And the first thing we can do is put those great-grandchildren of ours, in front of everything we do, including the shopping experience, the response to advertising, uh, and, and the fact that we should spend a little bit more on the creative industries. I was just commenting to my friend Stephen coming over here, look at this, this fabulous enjoyment that's going on in this festival with almost zero imp imp impact on the planet. How much better that is than buying a new V8? So, Bob, 
Where for you is the silver lining? I don't believe that Technofix will uh, save the planet. I think that's up to human collective ingenuity, democracy and good-heartedness and education. As um, H.G. Wells says, it's a, history's a race between education and disaster. Um, overnight we saw Nimrod being bulldozed uh, by ISIS, which is uneducated people creating disaster. However, uh, as we sit here, there are gathering in London tens of thousands, if not hundreds of thousands of people in a huge march against climate change, or for the technologies which are going to change things. And The Guardian, read The Guardian, today the retiring editor, Alan Rusbridger, is making it front page, that's climate change, and on Monday, and every week from now on, because he says, he realises it's not fast news, but it's impacting more than almost anything else on humanity, he's going to keep it on the front page of that ethical newspaper. There's a little bit of silver lining, but beside that, uh, you know, the predictions that from Stanford University that by 2030, and these are cogent, intelligent, based on trends now in place, with a 43% um, drop in the price of solar power each each year, you know, it's exponential, that by 2030 we will, or the US will have 100% electric cars, 80% of them driverless. I'm not sure about the second bit, but the first bit is true because, and there's a Tesla parked at this, a Tesla S, that's the new T model Ford, Ford T, the Tesla S is parked here on these precincts at the moment but they're building the $5 billion factory in Nevada, which is going to halve, again, the, the cost of lithium batteries, but which is going to mean um, it, it is cheaper, $5 for 400 kilometre range in costing, eight-year guarantee, miles unlimited. The, the standard internal combustion engine cannot match the electric engine which is now available and going into mass production on the planet, and it's going to transform transport for one instead of all those greenhouse gases going into the atmosphere because solar power is also going to kick fossil fuel production of uh, electricity out. Uh, this is a market trend as well as a political trend and the, all the polls show most people want it. So uh, the, the movement of history here is very rapid and it's very encouraging. It's very interesting that the Australian newspaper which is slightly different from The Guardian and uh, tends to have the ABC or climate change on the front cover saying uh, bullshit, bullshit, bullshit. Uh, today had a small article saying that electric cars, in fact, are anti-carbon because they use coal-fired power stations for their fuel. They would, wouldn't they? It's, uh, Robin, it's great to find somebody who still reads The Australian. <laughs> but... Uh... <laughs> well, it's better than sorbent. <laughs> Are, are you sure? <laughs> uh, but they would say that, wouldn't they? But the fact is that uh, the price of solar power uh, like that, uh, coal power is getting more expensive. In over 100 jurisdictions on Earth now, solar power is cheaper than fossil fuel power for electricity. And uh, they're going to try. They will try to do things like saying you cannot get off the grid by law. They'll get to the politicians, the lobbyists will. That's our job 
to stop that happening, to be on to our politicians to say, no, we want, we want the market to rule here because the market is going in, in terms of fossil fuel v the sun powering all, all our needs on this planet is going to win for the sun. They will try to intervene. The big corporations who are currently making the money will try to intervene uh, to have the market warped to keep, as Machiavelli said, the people with the power and money want to keep their aegis over what we do. It is up to us to say, no go. We're free marketeers. You're losers. We're for renewable energy. And, and uh, renewable energy is already streeting the market. Bob, we know uh, more or less your background. Peter, your own? You're in genes and biology? Yeah, I'm a, so I come from a scientific perspective. I'm a scientist, albeit recently retired one. Um, Bit closer. Bit closer. Just hold right. on. Right. How's that work? That's good. So I'm a scientist, and as you can see, I'm not very good at technology. <laughs> uh, even, even microphones present a challenge to me. So... I'm a recently retired scientist as well, I might, uh, I might say, and you know, my view of the, the climate change scenario and the, the silver lining of it is that there are, there are lots of technological advances that have been occurring. There are a lot of, I think, potential techno, techno solutions to a lot of the issues and a lot of the problems. Uh, a lot of really relates to the way in which we go about applying and deploying those technologies and understanding that there is going to be a lead in time for much of the changes and for the development of technology. My own area is in agriculture, so I look from a perspective of how do we go about improving uh, agricultural production systems, where are the opportunities there. Our predictions are that we need to produce 70% more food by 2050. Uh, now, 70% more than we're doing at the moment, that's a, uh, a really substantial challenge. But that's on a global average. There are parts of the world where uh, there's a, a, an enormous opportunity for improving production. Uh, Africa is obviously a, a, case, a, a case in point uh, where a lot of the resources, a lot of the infrastructure that's needed for food production isn't there. Uh, Central Asia is another area, I think, where there is enormous potential for development and expansion. So how do we go about, I think, developing the technologies in places where there is a very poor science base, a very poor education base, uh, how do we bring within that also the educational changes that are going to be necessary because ultimately we have to control world population and the only way to do that is through education, particularly of uh, uh, the female population in many of those countries and many of those areas. So, you know, it is a really big challenge, but we actually know what we need to do. Um, that goes back to Bob's point. It's the question about whether there's a political will to drive that, to, to actually take some technology risks as well to understand that there will be failures, there will be issues, and there will be problems. But unless we have that long-term vision, that I really like the, uh, the grandchild vision and uh, uh, that process, look at what the world will be like, not in 2050, but you know, well beyond that. How will the technologies be used? How will they be developed? How will they be deployed? Uh, will we have the society that are, are able to, to evaluate what needs to be done? and make wise decisions about how they apply these different things. Well, I know you're very much a, a more of a plants man than an animal person. Mm. But uh, in the program I've just broadcast, uh, we talked about meat, red meat, and the fact that cattle produce 15 or more percent of greenhouse gases, which is about, what, five times the amount that uh, aircraft produce twice as much or more than the internet, huge amounts. And in addition to that, as was shown in the cover story 
of the new scientist on the 25th of January, meat is supposed to cause cancers. Not simply preserved meat, but ordinary red meat steak. Do you see a massive reduction in our use of cattle around the world? Well, at the moment, the trend is the opposite. Uh, increase in uh, meat consumption. But, you know, even on that, and as a plant person, tying this back into the animals, there are actually new varieties of pasture grasses that uh, uh, reduce the, uh, the methane production by, uh, by grazing cattle by as much as 50%. So there are actually genetic solutions in plant breeding that help ameliorate that problem. You know, one, one can certainly argue, ideally, if we had a, a, a move to, uh, if we all became vegetarians, uh, certainly it would uh, uh, make feeding the world's population a hell of a lot easier. The word these days is flexitarians, where you eat 500 grams of meat a week instead of five times as much. So you can reduce yep. by huge amounts. I think, you know, there's, uh, there are certain types of meat production that are uh, environmentally sustainable. I think a lot of chicken production, poultry production, uh, which is essentially using uh, a lot of waste, uh, pig production as well. A lot of what's happening in the, uh, the fish and the, uh, the small-scale farmed fish area, I think there's some really nice developments there. And if you think about it, we've got almost no systematic breeding and development in, uh, uh, in the aquaculture and the fish industries. It's starting now with some dramatic results, but so there are real opportunities there. There are a whole lot of other crop plants that uh, I'm going to week after next time in Ethiopia uh, on, a, on a program looking at, sorry, this is a, a minor digression here, looking at uh, how we get new technologies around uh, millet breeding uh, deployed and developed. So for parts of the area in that belt uh, across the southern Sahara, the, the main grain foods are pearl millet, finger millet and sorghum. Now for pearl and finger millet there's been almost no systematic breeding. There are only a handful of breeders worldwide working on those crops. So the opportunities for genetic gain in those is enormous. Uh, to deal with some of the, uh, the disease problems particularly. So there is a huge amount we can do. Uh, but, you know, getting the investment into that, uh, that research, getting the deployment and the technologies out there with farmers, that is actually a significant challenge. So it's, a, it's more of a political in many respects than a scientific challenge. Yeah. Cecilia Wolford, you are a farmer. <laughs> That's right. Well, and you also go around South Australia talking to any number of people in the public and councils about what they can do? What kind of reception do you get? Um, I'm actually a farmer. I'm not a politician or a scientist, so I have a, a very different um, hat to wear here. So I'm a practitioner and I'm also a primary producer. Um, and I live in what I believe to be the most beautiful place in the world, and it's called the Air Peninsula. And we know that we are facing a hotter and drier future. We also know that we're in Ecotone. So all of the species that we have, that's the end of their... They can't go anywhere else. They can only go there, or we're all going to go down to Antarctica. We also produce 40% of the wheat, the export wheat production for South Australia, and also 45% of all primary um, seafood and fisheries. So we've got a lot that we have to protect. We still have 65% of our native vegetation intact. So what we said was that we're not going to worry about the policy settings... We're not really going to worry whether the three tiers of government want to play with us. We formed a group called EPICA, which is the Air Peninsula Integrated Climate Change Agreement, and we asked regional development boards, the Natural Resource Management Board, and the 11 local councils' representation and the Premier of South Australia to join us 
in looking at how we face the future and how we actually make decisions in the future and what opportunities we're going to have. That's how we frame the whole thing. So in the beginning, I have to say that local councils were really, because we're very conservative on the Air Peninsula, you know, I think they still read the Australian and I can tell you who they vote for as well. I can actually tell you how many people vote Labor in my town, right? <laughs> so, but we come out, we're, we're actually out there saying it. Um, what we did was say, it isn't really about us, it's about recognising any decision somebody makes impacts the other area. So it was about all of the sectors working together and we talked of opportunity. We didn't talk of vulnerabilities, we didn't talk all of that stuff, we were really positive. And now we have, we've produced um, what we're calling our regional adaptation plan, it's a year old. And it was a way of looking at how we make decisions and when we have to make decisions. So it's not a shopping list of options. It's a methodology of how we think. We now have all of the sectors really embedding that methodology within their own corporate, their own planning and their own thinking. So the local councils are taking it on board now. I think the biggest change for me in my little town called Kimba was six years ago, I couldn't use the word climate change. It would just be, go away, Cess, we're not listening to that crap. And now we can actually talk climate change in the pub and have a sensible conversation about really? it. Really? <laughs> Cecilia, two questions. I know you saw the last series of Borgen in which uh, an idealistic party wanted to change things. And uh, at first they used, to some extent, rhetoric, kumbaya and all that. Then they brought in a hard-nosed economist who could crunch the numbers and say, this is the evidence. You've done that, have you? We, we've been surrounded by scientific evidence. We are, because of, our, because of the Air Peninsula's place in the, in the environment and in the geographic sphere in Australia, we, we, we were just like the scientific hotbed. So everybody was going to come and do research there. So we, we know, we actually believe what scientists say, we trust them, you know. When we were getting people in the room, we, we couldn't get... It, it just wasn't getting anywhere. So what we did was we um, had a leaders industry breakfast and we invited a man called Mark Rogers. And if you ever get to hear this man speak, please, please go. Um, he just stood... At, we, and we invited the men in grey suits that all look the same and I hope they're not here, the mayors, um, and other leaders. And literally he stood there and within five minutes he is the head of global asset, uh, colonial global assets. So he's the guy, if you want to build an airport, he's the guy who's going to give you your billions of dollars or get them together. And he stood there and in the space of five minutes said, I don't really care whether you believe any of this stuff. What I'm going to tell you, if you don't have climate risk in your criteria, don't bother coming to me for money because you're not getting it. And it just changed the entire discussion on the Air Peninsula. So we talk money all the time now. And you analyse the costs of something, of delay of investing, say, in solar power, which is now 40% efficient. You know, it's astounding how it... But as Bob was saying, um, you do that sort of number crunching? We don't. What we do, because we, you know, we're not quite that sophisticated, but what we do do is make sure that we bring people like CEDA, the um, committee the Committee for Economic Development. Their latest report is fantastic and it actually says the big end of town is going to make a difference here. Insurance policies are going to get harder. So if you've got a nice shack in Lucky Bay which is about to get washed away, guess what? You might not get insurance. That'll make me think about it. Right? It Also, if you're going to build a port, 
you're not going to get the money unless you have climate change in there. There's the money level there. And also, we're already seeing um, large superannuation funds shifting their money around and the capital flows around the world are changing. We make sure that that sort of information, and I feel very responsible for this, we take that information and we put it into the Air Peninsula arena in language that is is palatable and not scary or, you know, out there stuff, you know. So I think that's our role. So I believe what we read. I actually trust trusted institutions to give us the information. We don't have to do it again. Cecilia, thank you. Uh, one more question before I come to Bob to comment on what he's just heard. There's going to be a... There's a Royal Commission into Nuclear in this state. Is nuclear part of the silver lining? Um, on the Air Peninsula, I can't say, I can't speak for that yet. We haven't had that discussion. But I'm also the chair of the Outback Communities Authority, which means that we are almost like the local council for 630,000 square kilometres of Outback in South Australia. And so we've already signalled that we will have this discussion, that we will take a really active role in this. I personally think we have to have this discussion. I need to know what is out there. If I take an, uh, my initial response might be an emotional response that I don't want to take. I want to take an informed response. But as far as the Outback Communities Authority is concerned, whatever happens is going to be in our backyard. It's going to be in our spot. So we're going to make sure that our constituents, our people who live there, actually have a say in this debate. No so that's where I'm option is. Yeah. 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 Bob. Well, the nuclear, uh, the nuclear option is so expensive compared with solar and uh, more and more solar available in the Air Peninsula, uh, it shouldn't be a, a global nuclear waste dump. And, um, you know, nuclear's, uh, nuclear can't provide the energy for the planet. The sun can. It's a nuclear reactor, but it's, not, it's 93 million miles away in old terminology and that's as close as we need one. <laughs> Peter, are you for a discussion about this? Let's uh, see where we're going. With the nuclear industry, um, yeah, I, I suppose my tendency is, as a, again, from a scientific perspective, I would like to see the, uh, a proper assessment and evaluation of the science. Uh, I, I think one of the things we really need to consider is also the, the whole question of risks associated with different technologies and the way in which they're applied and deployed. And, you know, when I see uh, the situations that is occurring in Germany, and I, you know, I work quite a lot in, in Germany, is where, um, They've uh, shut down most of their nuclear power plants and they're building furiously new coal-fired uh, power plants to compensate for that. I say, well, you know, has that really been a good decision? Have they really balanced things up properly or have they uh, responded emotively uh, to, uh, you know, what happened in Fukushima and these sorts of things? So, you know, the question I, I really ask is I don't know a lot about the nuclear industry myself. As a scientist, I want to see the science. I want to see a proper assessment. I want to see breaking away from uh, a lot of the, uh, the politics and uh, personal biases that have dominated, I think, a lot of the discussion. Yeah, going back to Germany, how do you explain the fact that the Chancellor, I mean, Angela Merkel is a sophisticated, well-qualified scientist. Why should we go, why should she go in that direction, coal-fired and shut down the nuclear plants? She's a politician. You know, she, okay, she was a professor of physics. You know, the concept of actually having a scientist at head of government, I think, would be, God, imagine having something like that in Australia. <laughs> Unbelievable. <laughs> Any rate, uh, I mean, she is a, a very pragmatic person. She's a very popular uh, leader within Germany. Uh, she was very supportive of the nuclear industry for a very long period of time. 
but she basically uh, was persuaded by the uh, very strong public uh, response to essentially Fukushima. Um, not that the likelihood of a, a tsunami in central Germany is very likely, but you know, it was a political response, not a scientific one. Well, here we have a situation where there are silver linings and many of them, like nuclear, nuclear, if you, if you suddenly decided you were going for it 10, 15 years away, maybe if you're very lucky, seven, if you wanted to opt that way. In uh, solar, yes, uh, Martin Green from the University of New South Wales just before Christmas announced 40% efficiency, which is brilliant. And some of the more inefficient sorts of solar can be spread out and the efficiency doesn't matter that much when you've got the acreage. And if you look at the current edition of Time magazine, there's the biggest uh, solar plant in the world in California and it's producing as much, if not more, than the baseline power. Now, to get some of these silver linings happening, Bob or all three of you, would you require what uh, some economists call the burning deck problem, where you suddenly have a calamity and you think, oh my gosh, I have to do something now, when in fact we all know that action needs to be taken. Will it, Bob, take a catastrophe? That's, that's a very key question. Are we pre or post catastrophic creatures? And I, I just use uh, the story of bringing into the Tasmanian Parliament in 1987 legislation to get rid of semi-automatic machine guns. And I got howled down. Uh, the cancer is Dr Brown, interjection, interjection. Inter I just got howled down. Uh, seven years later, Port Arthur massacre with 35 people shot dead and 65 maimed. And within three months, that same legislation handed by Christine Milne across to the state authorities and then up to Canberra became nationally... Uh, was nationally uh, legislated and as a result hundreds and hundreds of lives have been saved in Australia. But that was an example of a uh, pre-catastrophic pre um, opportunity being lost. I think though, Robin, uh, we're intelligent. I I'm not frightened about being emotional by the way. I am emotional about life uh, continuing and the, and the joyride of intelligence into the future and into the universe from this planet being kept intact. I think our primary purpose on this planet, and we've got to create our own purpose, is to keep this wonderful phenomenon going. And the risk factors there are mounting, and we have to, uh, and I think it's a democratic control of that that we have to have. So um, I, I'm, I'm, uh, I think the jury's out, but it is a, go back to HG Wells, it's a race between education and catastrophe, and I think if we're, uh, and, I, and I, Peter's quite right, getting education to everybody, and the signs are good. Rapidly the world is being much more better educated, and I mean secular education here. That's very important. Uh, it's a key to saving the world and giving us longevity on this planet. Peter, we've seen any number of signs. There's been a pattern, for instance, in the winter in the eastern part of North America. I tend not to go to... North America in winter because you know it's going to be paralysed. Kentucky could hardly move this week. Now, that's going to be a pattern that is almost like a recurring catastrophe. Do you believe that those sorts of patterns will eventually shift people? In agriculture, for example, when you can't actually, when you've got failures of crops again and again and again and droughts, the broadcast I've just done on can we feed the world? 
talked about the prediction through climate change of droughts being absolutely catastrophic just in the area of North America where they grow most of the crops. Uh, you know, it's, I'm a bit like Bob. I, God, I hope that we don't need a catastrophe uh, to, to signal change. And there are, there are signs. I think a, a, a number of small sort of mini catastrophes, shall we say, uh, may trigger uh, the response that we need. I think there's, there is now a recognition that things are changing, that there is a, there is a big problem. But jurisdictions vary very much in the way in they, which they respond. I mean, clearly, in uh, dealing with a lot of the climate change issues, Europe has, has very much taken, uh, taken the lead. I think countries like Australia had an opportunity there, which we basically lost. But looking at what's happening in Europe, I think, is, is really quite dramatic. I'm going, uh, actually, next week to a, uh, uh, on a panel for the French government looking at what they call climate-smart agriculture. And there are some really lovely projects there, uh, looking at the way in which they can adapt French agriculture to uh, the climate change. The big issue, drought actually is important, but really the big challenge for agricultural production is heat, uh, the rising temperatures. That's What's happening with the wine industry in Australia? Uh, well, I think a lot of the a lot of the winemakers are actually also uh, modifying, changing. They're changing their vineyards. You can, you know, use different varieties to deal with higher temperatures, with uh, uh, with lower rainfall predictions. You can even, in out of desperation, move to Tasmania, uh, yeah. and occasionally make a decent drop of wine. Brown um, brothers, <laughs> Brown yeah. brothers did that, didn't they? Yeah. <laughs> Yes, I had, to, I had to get that in because Bob made a rude comment about a South Australian wine earlier on. So. <laughs> I, I was just saying that uh, Sarah Hanson-Young, my former colleague in the Parliament, uh, after Tasmania won best wine, red wine in Australia a couple of years ago, I, I used to just say, Sarah, don't worry, South Australia still produces the second best wine. <laughs> Sorry about that. What <laughs> did you think about Tasmania producing the best whiskey in the world? Well, fabulous. And... Uh, <laughs> Uh, I don't mind a drop myself. And, uh, but uh, there we go. Um, that's come out of niche agriculture and that's important. Uh, what Peter's uh, talking about is, of course, feeding uh, 8, 10, 12 billion people. We're the biggest herd of mammals ever to graze the planet. And we're currently using 120% of the living resources and um, we have to collectively take in this in hand. So uh, Tasmania's got a lot going, uh, its glory days are in front of it, but even there, we've got politicians who want to invade the wilderness that so, so many people have tried so long to protect because we're all creatures from the wild. This is the emotional component or the spiritual component of this planet and we need an avenue to our origins and there's very little left and this is critically important. Wilderness, wildness, biodiversity is an absolutely essential resource for us if we're going to stay inspirited and optimistic and want to pass it on to our great-grandkids. So there's a job there to be done as well, to recognise that it isn't just oil, tin, lithium and whatever else, that keeping wildness and beauty and uh, scenic splendour, uh, being able to go out at night and listen to the owls uh, in, in the canopy is incredibly important to us uh, and our spirit as human beings and incredibly important to know we're going to pass that on. And politicians who want to compromise that or corporate people or anybody who wants to compromise that should be thrown out on their ears. Well, two years ago on this very stage, I had that very, very hairy man, Costa, 
from Gardening Australia talking about how you can use the opposite of wilderness and that that is the urban landscape, the roofs and everything else to grow vast amounts of crops. In fact, one of my colleagues did a wonderful book, a cookbook as, as well, about what you can grow on your balcony. So there you are. What is the potential really these days, both of you of uh, urban agriculture, do you think? Well, I'm, I'm going to do a little bit of the, um, the Jamestown, i.e. A, a farming community just north of here, but remote, not too remote. Um, they just, their local councils worked with the local government association here to, to in, I, I could have the detail wrong, but it's basically their effluent system is, is, is open air water. And so they've now just put a solar, a floating solar system over the whole top of it, which will actually stop the evaporation, create electricity that can actually power part of the town. And that's happened in Jamestown. That sort of innovation, to me, means that if, when we talk about, you know, whether it's going to be a catastrophe that's going to trigger all of this other stuff, I actually think people... I believe in human beings actually triggering this stuff. I think that logical people like to know that they can be part of a conversation where they can make a difference. If we offer that conversation to them, they'll come up with those innovations and find... I mean, this is a sewage plant that is now going to lead Australia in how we use this new technology. That's what I think is a silver lining. I, and I love, I love urban gardens. I think... I think the opportunity to try and develop the, the concept of urban gardens is really important. There's some lovely examples around the world, you know, in Havana, in Cuba, because due to the embargo, uh, they were producing close to 40% of their vegetable production from, for that city was done in urban gardens. I think there's some lovely examples, you know, during the Second World War in London, uh, where they also had to encourage people to do that. The allotments. The allotments, the allotments, right across Europe as well. Um, uh, Vancouver also has had a, an urban garden uh, uh, program, which I think accounts for something like 10 to 15 percent, tied in with uh, 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 you know small uh, markets and so on to, for people to trade some of that produce. There is not only the benefit of making use of the uh, of the urban environment, and it, it actually creates a nice environment itself, but it actually teaches people a lot more about food and about food priorities. You always, if you've grown something yourself then you're not too upset if there happens to be half a worm in the apple you've just bitten into. Uh, or if your, uh, your capsicums are not, you know, absolutely perfect uh, colour and so on. Uh, you, you eat what you produce, you enjoy eating what you produce, your, uh, your standards may be low a little bit in terms of quality and so on. But I think in the cases where there's been a, a systematic development of urban gardens, you've also seen a change in the dietary patterns of the community as well. And it takes so little to do to encourage that to happen. Just a little bit of training, a little bit of resources. It was interesting, I, I was reading an article a while ago in, during the peak of the drought in 2007, 2008, when we had water restrictions in uh, uh, all of the major cities around uh, Australia. And in Canberra, uh, they, um, they decided to, to also offer training courses for people in how they could use less water in their, in their gardens. And a lot of that was focused on how do you use less water to still grow your fruit and your vegetables and so on. Over that period, they saw a dramatic increase in the number of vegetable gardens, the number of uh, fruit trees that were being planted in Canberra. So clearly, the problem was that people didn't know how to do this. They weren't encouraged to do it. Not that they didn't want to. So small things like that can have a, have a big impact and can change. And it will change both the way in which we use the urban landscape. I think it will improve the urban landscape. 
but it also has uh, ramifications for our diets. What if primary school kids or even secondary school kids were asked to help grow their lunch and also somebody suggested perhaps go to an abattoir? Well, I, 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 great idea. And uh, Stephanie Alexander, for example, has got these gardens going at schools. The local Signet um, Catholic and primary schools have got uh, gardens for kids and, and they take out of the garden and then they have cooking lessons, boys and girls, and uh, they take that with them. In, into adulthood. This is, this is silver lining and it's terrific stuff. So it's happening, Robert. Mm. Uh, we all know about seed banks, which are terribly important things, which uh, the great Russian Vavilov helped start during the, or just before the Second World War, and he lost his life from Lysenko and Stalin as a result. But, you know, the seed banks there are helping us prepare for a future in which perhaps some of our monocultures with restricted genes uh, may be vanquished. But uh, Peter, how do you see, and Cecilia, the, the GMO possibilities if we need to get genes from these seeds to transplant or maybe from actual plants outliving? How do you see that progressing in the, in the near future to make up for the fact that some of our crops are languishing? Right, I'll go for that one Call first. it a silver lining. Okay. Mm -hmm. So I'm, plant breeding is based upon the utilisation of variation. And that variation can come from a whole range of sources. It can come from wild relatives. In most breeding programs, breeders prefer to make crosses between elite cultivars because that way they're most likely to get an elite cultivar out. If you want to go back to some wild material and make crosses, it can be a very long, slow process. Uh, in the crops I work with, which are mainly the winter cereals, wheat, barley and rye, um, if you go back to one of the wild relatives of wheat and make a cross, from the time in which you make that cross to having a, uh, a variety you can release to farmers takes you in the order of 30 years. It's a lifetime's job. It's a really difficult process, very slow. Um, there are a whole range of strategies and technologies that have been developed to try and accelerate that process. And I won't, I'll spare you the technical details, although they're wonderful fun to play with and do things with, be that as it may. Uh, and in the, in the progression of using variation, we also then explored ways of creating novel variation, using mutagenesis, either using ionizing radiation or chemical mutagens to induce changes. And most of our modern uh, uh, varieties that we grow now have either material from wild relatives brought in or mutations generated by uh, chemical or uh, ionising radiation. And from a scientific perspective, genetic engineering was a, a logical progression of that. It was essentially another way of uh, uh, getting, generating variation, introducing that into crop plants. Where it's been available to growers, it's been phenomenally successful. It's had the highest adoption rate we've seen for any agricultural technology. Uh, it's already actually somewhat dated now. The new technologies around genome editing, where you can go in and make quite targeted changes, as in mutagenesis, are now, uh, are now dominating and being widely deployed, causing real headaches for regulators around the world because they've got no idea if they need to regulate it or how they would regulate it if they did. Uh, but, you know, the science is advancing, new technologies are coming on. I think one of the important things is for people to understand the science, understand the implications, the ramifications of different technologies, how they're deployed. A lot of the concern that's really come around genetic engineering is really tied in with the issue of multinational control which is not a scientific question, it's more of a political question. Um, and, you know, on, I think uh, I personally would have liked to have seen greater investment by the public sector in development and delivery of technology. 
We as a society have decided we would leave a lot of that to the private sector. Uh, the private sector are now seeking to make money and profits out of that. Uh, and we can't now turn around and say, well, we have a problem with uh, uh, the, the private sector uh, making profits from these technologies. That's my See, view. Um, my experience is that on the Air Peninsula, this debate rages because we create we actually create import, uh, export wheat. And therefore, you would find anybody having this discussion, usually it's fairly heated. When we did our plan using the methodology which is called Applied Adaptation Pathways, and you can find it, it's, it's on the internet, um, it demystified the debate. It actually said, okay, what are all of our options? And GMO was one of them. But when do we actually have to start thinking about that? And when you look at the time when, when we exhaust other options, the time that you have to start thinking about it, or the time you have to do it, is a long way out. So it means that we can now say, well, who is thinking about it and who's planning, but we don't have to fall on our sword and make it all happen tomorrow. We've now got time to seriously think, what will we do about this? And I really think that having a discussion still doesn't mean that you have the social licence. So there's a still a long way to go with these things. But this planning tool demystified and allowed us to have a very sensible conversation about when we think about GMO. I'll come to Bob in a minute. <coughs> then we'll go to questions. There'll be microphones. And no soliloquies, please, just short questions. <laughs> would be nice. Bob, comment from you? Well, firstly, if something's moving ahead of the ability to regulate, it should stop until it's regulated. That's the, that's the process of democracy. If we're going to be safe, that's required. The second thing is when the Greens moved in the federal parliament to ensure that with GMOs, uh, they'd be insured. The people putting them in insure so that if there is damage to nearby organic growers or whatever, uh, that's covered. It was voted down. Uh, a very sensible move. Uh, things are... It's not just in... GMOs, but it's in uh, a wide range of technologies. Stephen Hawking's warning recently about artificial intelligence is a, a, a very worrying example where we need to have a regulation coming from the people through their representatives, through democracy. There is no other option because we know the corporate sector won't stop. It's got a private motivation. Uh, we've got a societal motivation, which is quite different, and we need to insist that our members of parliament respond to that. It's as simple as that. And I think uh, at the moment we're far too lackadaisical about it. Questions? Lots of them. Choose, microphone person. <laughs> thank you. Oh, thank you. Uh, Scott McDonald, Kangaroo Island. Um, there's an aspect of the cloud of climate change. Bob touched on it. Paul Ehrlich touched on it 50 years ago, and that is population, which I believe hides behind the cloud. I wonder where is the silver lining? He talked about it in today's science show as well. <laughs> well, the silver lining is in projections that show um, that world's population uh, will get to 8 to 12 billion by the end of the century and then uh, level off, if not start falling off. Russia's population is falling, so is Japan, so is the Australian natural-born uh, population. Uh, wherever we get uh, people to the upper level where they can uh, have their life opportunity met, population starts falling. Um, family, family sizes start falling. Very important what uh, Peter said, we've got to educate everybody, uh, but we've also got to share our resources. 
Uh, Paul Gilding, though, makes the point that on current – the growth economy – I heard Harry Recker have a – get a, a sentence in about it on radio the other morning. The growth economy, the god of growth, in terms of exploiting the planet, is unsustainable. And uh, we have to change religions from this materialist religion that has us by the throat at the moment to a, a, a um, respect for the planet and, and, a, and a, a drive to have us living with it instead of off it so that we can pass it on. Uh, it's a fundamental change in, in thinking that's coming down the line here and uh, whether we change that thinking before the catastrophe or other, I don't, I don't know. Population of itself, uh, and I think um, with the work of uh, our innovation around the planet, we'll be able to withstand, um, but we won't be able to if we don't share, and secondly, if we keep the growth of consumption of the planet going. 120% of, of, of renewable living resources at the moment. That's why forests, fisheries and so on are going backwards. We're in the crisis and we've got to wake up to it and we've got to insist that our elect elected representatives bring the corporate sector into, into uh, some form of control for the safety of our future and our great-grandchildren's future. We can do it, matter of whether we get off the footpath to do it. One thing that uh, Paul Alec repeated today and he said over many years is that the education of women is paramount and the subjugation of women in the various parts of the world is catastrophic. And as soon as that's changed, you will get a difference in the population. Next question, please. Um, I was a Greens candidate in the recent Queensland election, which was a silver lining in a way. We had a fairly extreme climate-denying government. Interesting, the biggest swings occurred in central and northern Queensland and the big issues there were coal versus the Barrier Reef. So it's, there's no doubt that the Barrier Reef spoke in that election. One of the sweetest ironies, ironies now is that the new Queensland uh, Environment Minister is uh, an Al Gore presenter, believe it or not. So I, I think the silver lining is that in the current environment, we have extreme political volatility, as we saw there. And it's quite possible for extreme climate-denying governments to go extinct almost overnight. <laughs> well, to quote my dear friend Tony Jones, I'll take that as a comment. Next. <laughs> Thank you. Uh, Leora Black from Melbourne. Um, I just wanted to, to ask a question to all of the panellists. Um, you haven't spoken much about the role of business in the silver lining. Uh, except to remind us about how greedy uh, business can be. The most useful thing came, I think, from Celia acknowledging the role of investors in really driving a positive response to climate change. So I just wanted to ask all of the panel, uh, what is the most useful thing that business can do to really drive that silver lining? Um, part of me wants to say straight away on the on the the big corporate the the absolute capital investment level, keep taking care of your own interests because their own interests. If we don't start adapting and mitigating, then the serious implications of what will happen with the cost blowouts are, are now on the table. I think, I think the clearest example is that if we had built a levy around. Oh, what's the place that flooded in um, in in Queensland? 
Roma. If we built Roma. a levy around Roma in 2005, it would have cost $20 million. Since 2005, we've spent $500 million repairing the town. So if it's the smart end of town, the smart business, knows this sort of figure work now. So I'm hoping that they'll keep on being like that. They'll actually start saying, we, we now need to start putting money in preparation as opposed to waiting for the catastrophe. The other thing I think, if I bring it down to businesses that I deal with, I think create an environment where people will start recognising that if you're doing a, an environmentally sustainable aspect in your company, then support it, support that business. It does mean that we might have to pay a little bit more money for these products, then I'm suggesting that we pay a little bit more money for these products and show that, sh show that innovation is actually worthwhile and respected. I think that's my main answer. I, I really believe that the economy, the economics of climate change will play out very, very quickly and very soon and that I hope will be a correlation with where we're all working in the environmental side of things. Peter. I, I'd really agree with what Cecilia has just said that, uh, and certainly from my area, I think we need, we need industry to take a long-term view. And again, this goes back to the point that uh, Bob was being made. And a lot of that will come really through from the shareholders and from the consumers of whatever the products or whatever it is that the industry is doing. I think to basically say that we're not interested in a, a, a short-term profit, a short-term return, but we're looking at the sustainability of that industry over a longer period of time, that we expect any industries that we invest in or that we're a partner of that they have this long-term view, that they have considered what's going to be happening in uh, 10, 20 years' time. Uh, I think we need to try and get that view in there. Currently, from my perspective at least, so much has become uh, very short-term. Short -term. What's the profits going to be like over the next six months or 12 months, uh, rather than what is the long-term uh, value of that industry? And we can see some brilliant examples internationally where industries that have actually taken a long-term view have ended up being uh, both extremely profitable, but also have a really long-term uh, sustainable future. May I say that at the University of New South Wales, where I'm a visiting professor, we uh, took two years ago the trouble to ask business to turn up to say what they're actually doing now. ANZ Bank, General Electric, and the wine industry, we've already mentioned, had this incredible long list of what they're already up to. And it seems to me if we actually trawl through some of the rhetoric, and got hold of the business people and asked them the same question, you'll find it's on the move. Yes, but there we have BP and Exxon wanting to drill for oil in the National Park in the Great Australia Bight, for goodness sake, uh, when fossil fuels need to be kept in the ground and we need to be moving to the alternative. And it's government that's required to regulate the market. It's not the other way around. And uh, the more noise that's made about that, the more safe that great national park will be. That said, we need global democracy. One person, one vote, one value, one planet. And people worried about that. The question is, well, what is the alternative? Are you happy to still have Coca-Cola, News Limited, Rio Tinto, the Chinese Liberation Army in their manifest uh, worldwide reach, the um, Saudi royal family running the planet. They're not running it well. I have much more faith, faith in five billion voters going to the ballot box and putting in a global government to look at international issues, not the domestic ones, we'll keep control of those. But uh, until we put faith in democracy, Winston Churchill said it's the best thing going, it's warts and all, it's better than anything else that's been tried, and demand we get it, we leave it to the business sector and, and I'm a, 
the old business sector because it's the old people who have the power and the influence to keep doing what they're doing. There's fantastic people in business uh, and they're on the rise and they're very much long-term and they're thinking through their grandkids. But that's not the power base at the moment and we need to change it very swiftly and global democracy is one of the keys to that. Next question. Uh, hello. Hi. Um, uh, with, with what was said in the, in the comment about um, the current like, political um, transparency and I mean especially with the aspects of social media and how clear it is that these, uh, the current way of running things has a, a particular vested interest in uh, economic I ideology. Um, uh, to, to challenge to like to challenge that as like as it is kind of flawed um, with like ripping the minerals out of the earth and, and such um, as a swing back to that like um, that that way of seeing the world as you, as you were saying with a uh, uh, kind of getting a more educated uh, population to, to base uh, decisions on and uh, kind of infusing uh, science into like uh, people's ideas and how they see the world. Um, like how, what would be the best way to kind of, what would be the best approach to, to kind of reinfuse that? And uh, I mean, especially with the way of um, like uh, cutting the funding to things like, you know, indigenous support women, uh, you know, like science-based thinking and like how would we take back the ground which we gain, gained in the like 70s, like with Dunstan? And, how do you go back to how things were when they were more effective, Bob? Well, one and a half million people in Australia aren't enrolled to vote. Um, I ask you, it is, it is incredibly important, uh, and I keep coming back to that, but that said, we've got to get active. We should go and see BP about its plan to threaten the National Park in the greatest... Australia bite. We should go and see our politicians about the need to give the brakes to renewable energy as a, and we should insist that they pay for the on costs of global warming which we're now experiencing in this country. Um, why should we be paying as taxpayers for increased drought to help farmers get through when fossil fuels are being burnt all the time 80% by international corporations uh, and they don't pay anything for it. They well, should be paying for the Bob, cost of why it. Do they, why does the fossil fuel industry get a $5 billion subsidy? Because um, Australians uh, haven't said, we won't vote for you if you keep giving those multi-billion dollar subsidies, and both the big parties do it. And they need to be told, on the phone, at their office, whichever House of Parliament they're in, by us, lining up at the door, if you don't change, take that $5 billion subsidy of fossil fuels and put it across to hospitals and schools and police stations if you can't put it across to renewable energy, I will not vote for you because my grandchildren want that change. It mightn't suit my immediate interest now, but my great-grandchildren, that is their interest. And, and again, this is a perception thing. It's incredibly important. We are, as individuals, very, very powerful. But we're sleepwalking. Time for two more questions. No preamble. Could you uh, just make them swift? Thanks. 
Sorry, you, you need a microphone, otherwise you can't be broadcast. Right, I think I have the microphone, thanks. Um, <laughs> my name's Tom Jones from Adelaide. Bearing in mind uh, that somebody famous once said, uh, when the facts change, I change my mind, I'm wondering whether, Bob, you heard Occam's razor last week about uh, small, scalable nuclear power, and I completely endorse your advocacy for solar, but is there perhaps a place for a nuclear industry that actually eats nuclear waste as its uh, fuel? Well, provided you can't make nuclear weapons, because on the other side we've got Al-Qaeda advertising, Al-Qaeda ad advertising, to get uh, the technology to be able to produce handbag uh, nuclear weapons to, to be able to put in places like the Adelaide Cricket Ground and you, you, a cricket oval. And you, you just, it's a dangerous technology. As far as thorium and fusion, which um, since I was a boy we're told is just around the corner, different story. So my mind is open, but if the facts change so that the technology which allows small nuclear power stations not to be converted into handbag-sized nuclear weapons, Please let me know. I think I think Kane said that about facts. Yes, last question, please. Is it me? Uh, um, we've got a Labor government in South Australia. We've had it for 16 years, and we're in another four-year uh, uh, um, time. The uh, premier is getting very excited and is uh, wanting a royal commission headed up by our ex-governor to look at um, nuclear, nuclear power. power and whether or not it can be uh, safely and uh, profitably done in South Australia. And there will be a lot of support for that. Question? Well, that's do you think it will happen? Cecilia, you start. Um, as I said before, um, I'm really welcoming the, uh, the Royal Commission so that I can ensure that we hear all the sides of the debate. And certainly, as I said, hearing, hearing the new information, hearing the science, seeing the cost benefits, seeing all of that doesn't mean that there is a social licence to go ahead and build a nuclear power plant. What it means is that we might have an educational, a, a different educational base about when we make that decision. I actually don't think it is going to be about building a nuclear power plant. I think it's going to be about, in some way, shape or form, creating a large nuclear waste dump. I think that's a very different issue. We need to have that discussion. And then I th I'm with Bob. I think the more people who talk and talk loudly and sensibly, then the better I'm going to feel informed about having a, making a decision in that debate. As I said, I'm going to ensure that the Outback Communities Authority, um, to the best of my ability, speaks for the people who live in the Outback. So we'll make sure the information is out there and the conversation happens out there as well as in the Royal Commission at Parliament. Time has beaten this, but thank you, Bob. Thank you, Peter. Thank, thank you, Cecilia. You.